This was, uh, I'd say, one of the most haunting cases uh, for me as a prosecutor, the, the murder of not only your wife, but your, your young children uh, is a, a particularly terrible crime. And the way Mr. Zakharovsky did it, he chose to hack them to death with a machete. It was a particularly heinous crime and one of the very worst I handled. That was retired prosecutor Bobby Elmore discussing the gruesome murders committed 24 years ago by U.S. Air Force Technical Sergeant Edward Zakharuski. The killer was eventually captured in Hawaii after Unsolved Mysteries aired a segment seeking the public's help in locating him. That story and more are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the sentencing of a South Carolina woman who 20 years ago stole a baby from a Jacksonville hospital when the infant was just eight hours old and brought her back to South Carolina, where she raised her. The kidnapper wouldn't be caught for 18 years. And on Friday, she was sentenced to 18 years in prison. My special guest for that segment will be Florida Times Union investigative reporter Eileen Kelly. Later, I'll discuss the horrifying murders committed by Edward Zakharuski, who fatally beat and choked his wife and then hacked his seven-year-old son and five-year-old daughter to death on June 9, 1994, in their Okaloosa County home. Zakharuski murdered his wife because she was going to leave him and then killed his children because he didn't want them to grow up without him. He remained at large for four months until he was caught in Hawaii. Zakharuski remains on death row. My special guest for that segment will include retired homicide prosecutor Bobby Elmore, former TV journalist Michelle Nicholson, Northwest Florida Daily News investigative reporter Tom McLaughlin, and former U.S. Air Force Sergeant Joe Barker. Coming up, the story of the Jacksonville baby kidnapping. It doesn't heal now. I'm still hurting. When you just you reaching out to my child, that is my child. I am your mother, Kamaya. I am your mother. That was Shanera Mobley who at 16 years old had her infant daughter stolen from her by Gloria Williams, who posed as a nurse at what was then the University Medical Center in downtown Jacksonville. On July 10th, 1998, Williams snatched the baby, Kamaya Mobley, and placed her in a bag and walked through the hospital's parking lot. She fooled the family into thinking she was a nurse. She fooled the nurses into thinking she was family. Williams never looked back as she drove all the way to Walterboro, South Carolina. Shanera Mobley 
has not spoken much to the media during the past 20 years. But soon after her release from the hospital, she was interviewed by a local television station. Here is a portion of her interview. Listen for yourself just how devastated she was. Please, please marry my baby. I if you don't have no kids, if you, I mean, if you was faking a pregnancy or, I mean, you just can't have no kids. I mean, how you think I feel? I, oh, true enough, I'm only 16 years old, but I have fantasy. That's my first child. After she got home, Williams packed a bag full of diapers and other supplies and kept it lying around for a while, expecting police to find her. That bag was for police to use as they traveled back to Jacksonville with the baby. But the police never came. Williams had committed the perfect crime, and the more she kept the baby, the more she fell in love with her. Kamaya Mobley's name was changed to Alexis Manigo. During the first 18 years of her life, she always went by Alexis or Lexi. Shanera Mobley, meanwhile, continued living for the next 18 years, not knowing what happened to her daughter. Times Union investigative reporter Eileen Kelly has covered this story for years. I just know that she's a very hurt woman. And it was really sad in court in May when she was saying, you know, what she lost in life and how she was preyed upon because she was a child, having a child. And, you know, that's why she picked her. On January 13th, 2017, Williams was arrested. The Times Union reported at the time that roughly 2,500 tips resulted in dead ends. But two tips from late 2016 came into the Center for Missing and Exploited Children that sent Jacksonville Sheriff's cold case detectives to Walterboro, which is about 200 miles north of Jacksonville. It is the county seat of Colleton County and has a population of about 5,000 residents. Investigators learned that Alexis Manigo had the same birthday as Kamaya Mobley. Then they learned fake documents were drawn up to establish her identity. The investigators conducted interviews with people in the community, and then Alexis herself gave them a DNA sample. It was a match. Detectives, along with an agent from the FBI, sat down with Alexis and told her that the people who were posing as her family weren't her family at all, and that she was really Kamaya Mobley. She already knew part of the story. She knew that her mother had taken her. She had found that out two years earlier. But on this day, authorities told her that her life was about to be turned upside down. Williams, the only mother Alexis ever knew, was going to be arrested. And she was going to be sent to prison. Possibly for life. It turned out that on Friday... She was sentenced to 18 years, one year in prison for every year that Kamaya had been reported missing. The news rocked the Walterboro community. No one could believe it that this, you know, God-fearing, church-going woman had lived this lie. And, and you know, everything that we, you know, we traveled all around, you know, I did, going from, you know, different places where they lived and finding, you know, different neighborhoods and going to schools where Kamaya grew up under the name Alexis and everyone was just absolutely stunned. I mean, you know, just, you know, they were just kind of this perfect little family of, 
you know, a mother and daughter that got along perfectly, that, you know, two attractive people. She did well in school. The mother was very active in her church, very active in the community. She took care of veterans. She took care of her parents. She was, you know, wonderful and neighborly. You know, everyone just couldn't believe that, what, she was arrested on kidnapping? What, that little girl that looks like her isn't her daughter? Williams may have raised Kamaya into the impressive young woman she is today, but she also dropped a big mess into her lap. Kamaya is torn between the woman she called mom, who is now in prison, and a family she doesn't know, but desperately wants to be part of her life. Additionally, Kamaya doesn't have all the documents that ordinary American adults have, and that has caught up to her. You know, eventually the lies are going to come through. You know, eventually... She couldn't get a license. She couldn't go to college. You know, she was registered for height for a school with a fake birth certificate. Eventually, she may want to get married. She only recently obtained a Social Security card. This case has devastated Kamaya's birth family. Here is Kelly describing the one sit-down interview Shanara Mobley granted to the Times Union nearly a decade ago. Shanara has not talked to anyone. Shanara, she gave our paper an interview at the 10-year anniversary, and it was a really touching story, and she had talked about how every year on Kamaya's birthday, how she buys a sheet cake, and she'll cut a piece herself and for her children, and then she'll stuff a piece, she'll wrap a piece in tin foil and place it in the freezer for the just-in-case, and she had told our reporter at 10 years ago that this is what she had done every year for 10 years. Shanara Mobley is now 36 years old. Kamaya's biological father is Craig Aiken. He was in jail on a drug charge when Kamaya was born. After he got out, he was jailed on statutory rape allegations. He was in his 20s when he impregnated Shanara, who was 15 years old at the time. Aiken has been a free man for years, and he and Mobley remain close. He, too, felt extreme emotional pain following Kamaya's abduction. When he and Mobley got the news that their daughter had been found and she was safe and alive, they rejoiced and drove the 200 miles together to Walterboro to meet their child. Oh, they were absolutely overjoyed, and they drove up the next morning to go meet their daughter for the first time. Craig never actually set eyes on his daughter. Finally get to meet this little girl. They, they, you know, post a selfie. It's a wonderful photo. We talked to them briefly um, up in Walterboro. You know, he was just ecstatic. But I believe he was probably, that may have been a little bit of a veneer because I believe that he did find out that she had known for a while and didn't say help, you know. I think what you imagine on TV, you know, help me, I've been kidnapped kind of thing. Because when I called him later, he did break down. He said, yes, we did find out. I'm trying to not think about it. And so for this past year and a half, he's tried hard not to think about a lot of things. Aiken, unlike Mobley, has agreed to speak to the media. Kamaya herself has also agreed to interviews. The story made national news, and she has made numerous television appearances. She even agreed to take part on a cable reality show. But there is some awkwardness between Kamaya and her birth parents. Things are also now awkward between her and those she knew back in South Carolina.
During one of Williams's court hearings last month, Kamaya sat by herself in the courtroom, away from both the Mobley family and the Williams family. During recesses, she would sit by herself in the courtyard. Kelly pointed out to me what could be causing the strain. Mobley has been very unforgiving toward her daughter's abductor. And now, you know, with with this sentence, honestly, it could be a bigger struggle because the little girl did not want a harsh sentence. And in court, Shannara had told the judge she would like the death penalty. Now, that was never going to be on the table. You can't help but wonder, you know, think, oh, wow, how's this going to, you know, what's this going to do to your relationship? Maybe she got caught up in the moment. It was incredibly emotional. The lingering question to all of this is why. Why did Gloria Williams decide 20 years ago to steal someone else's baby? Heather Crawford of First Coast News, the NBC affiliate in Jacksonville, described to viewers what Williams herself told the court last month. Now, the motive. Why did she kidnap Kamaya Mobley? That's something that so many people have wanted to know. And today, in her own words, Gloria Williams said she was in an abusive relationship and she got pregnant and she thought that a baby would bring peace to that relationship. And when she had a miscarriage, she described just a kind of a state of confusion and chaos and getting in a car, driving south down I-95, getting off at a Jacksonville uh, exit and ending up at the hospital, what is now UF Health Hospital. And in there, she said, I found myself looking at the newborns in the newborn ward, thinking to myself, fighting with myself. And then hours later, she would walk away with Kamaya Mobley and live with this deep, dark secret she said she told not a soul about for 18 years. For now, Kamaya is still living in South Carolina. She is gainfully employed and still communicates with the woman who stole her, which is another dagger to the heart of her biological mother. She did not want Gloria to be in jail for a long time. She has said, you know, I realize what she did was wrong, but don't, you know, I don't want this to be a long sentence. Um, they've shared letters back and forth. It's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Gloria Williams, who was 52 years old, was credited for the 511 days she has spent in jail. She is expected to be released from prison after she turns 68. Coming up, the story of the brutal deaths of a mother and her two children at the hands of an Air Force sergeant near Eglin Air Force Base 24 years ago. The method that he chose was part of what was so incredibly horrifying. He purchased a machete at lunchtime, went back to work, and worked the rest of the shift, went home, hid the machete in the bathroom, and then proceeded to take out the family one by one. That was former WEAR Channel 3 reporter Michelle Nicholson describing the method used by Edward Zakharovsky, who attacked his wife while she wasn't looking with a crowbar and then used a machete to kill his seven-year-old son and five-year-old daughter. When he was done killing his children, he used the machete on his wife to ensure she was dead. It would take four months before Zakharovsky was caught. He had sold his car, boarded a plane in Orlando, and headed west, deciding to live the life of a woodsman 
in Malakai, Hawaii, 4,000 miles away from Mariester, Florida. While in Malakai, he befriended a pastor and his family. One night, he was invited to join them in their living room for a night of TV viewing. They picked the very show that contained the very segment that showed Zakharovsky's picture and detailed his crimes. He knew he was busted. The next morning, he turned himself in at the Malakai jail. Edward Zakharovsky, now 53 years old, is on death row in Union Correctional Institution in Rayford. Before he wound up in such a dark place, he was a well-liked, well-respected married father of two who doted on his two kids, Edward Jr. and Anna. A Michigan native, Zakharovsky enlisted in the U.S. Air Force sometime after high school and at one point met his future wife, Sylvia, in South Korea. Sylvia was three years older than Zakharovsky. The pair raised two children together and eventually settled in Okaloosa County, a community largely inhabited by military families and military contractors and their families. Zakharovsky, known by most people as Sergeant Zak, was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base. He was responsible for ordering replacement parts for F-15s, a famous fighter aircraft. Among those who worked with him was Joe Barker, who also was a sergeant stationed at Eglin in 1994. She's now a civilian and lives in Phoenix. She first met Sergeant Zack not long after she arrived at Eglin in 1993, after being stationed in Saudi Arabia. The two became fast friends. He was super nice. I mean, really, really polite, really nice. Obviously a family man, talked about his kids. He had a very, very strong affection for his daughter, Anna. Talked about her like she was the apple of his eye. He was very friendly, very personable. We joke about stuff. I mean, he was just a normal guy. And I remember thinking he was cute. I remember thinking, I don't know, that he was just a really nice guy, someone you'd want to hang out with. She wasn't the only one who thought so. Bobby Elmore, the assistant state attorney who prosecuted Zakharovsky in 1996, recalled the character witnesses who were called to the stand during the sentencing hearing. Here is Elmore recalling their impressions of him. Uh, he was a good-looking guy. I mean, uh, very clean-cut-looking guy. And uh, I was, you know, a little bit surprised that you know, these Air Force co-workers of his, they came in and, you know, they told the truth. And the truth was that as far as they were concerned, he was, you know, about the best co-worker they'd ever had. Apparently a very hard worker, uh, a friendly guy to all of them. And, you know, and so none of them had a bad word to say about him. There was one part of Zakharovsky's life that wasn't going well, his marriage. Sylvia was hard on him. When she wasn't happy with what he was doing or how the marriage was going, she would tell him. A lot of stories that were published and aired about the murders disclosed information about the killings themselves, but not about the couple's rocky marriage. You've heard of a tiger mom. Well, Sylvia was a tiger wife. You don't read a lot in there about what was his main bone of contention there as to why this happened, which was mainly complaints about his wife. 
she uh, was a gambler and basically uh, you know went and played bingo and gambled every day with her Korean friends and uh, expected him to come home from a hard day at work and work even harder attempting to obtain promotions. Sylvia was more than pushy. She wanted to leave her husband. She wanted another child, but not with him. Her parents wanted that for her, too. And then this issue came up where her parents had, he testified that her parents had then expressed disappointment that they didn't have any purebred Korean grandchildren. And so she started telling him that uh, she was going to have to have, uh, you know, a baby with a purebred Korean person with another man. And as I recall, on the day of the murder, she had Edward call him and tell him she wanted a divorce. That's when he set his plan in motion to instead of let that happen, kill everyone. Zakharuski was feeling the pressure. He didn't snap. He stewed. He conjured an idea of how he was going to murder his wife and then somehow save his kids from the horrors of dealing with their dead mother while their father rotted in prison. He decided to end their lives, too. Here is Northwest Florida Daily News investigative reporter Tom McLaughlin. Bobby argued in court that the, uh, that the defendant thought about the murder of his family for a long time and he, and he planned it. And there was evidence that he had planned it for like from November until June, uh, November of 1993. Elmore told jurors that Zakharuski once told a neighbor in November 1993, quote, before I'll let her divorce me and leave me, I will kill them all. Zakharuski and his wife bought the house they lived in on Shrewsbury Road in Mary Esther on April 28, 1994. Six weeks later, it would be the scene of one of the Florida Panhandle's worst ever domestic-related homicides. A community like the one in Mary Esther, which rests along the Gulf of Mexico in Okaloosa County, isn't normally the place for much carnage. It is a very chummy and conservative community. Here again is Michelle Nicholson, who for years was a reporter for the ABC affiliate out of Pensacola and is now a public information officer for the Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office. People get along tremendously well. It's extraordinarily a patriotic community. Tons of support for the military um, in this community, which is you know, dominant as far as the economy and everything else. And a lot of the folks here are retired military as well and are connected. And I would say it's a fairly close-knit community where, for the most part, people get along very well. On Thursday, June 9th, Sylvia had made her son, Edward Jr., call his father and tell him that his mother wanted a divorce. At one point, Zakharuski went to the bank and withdrew $5,400. Joe Barker recalls some other details of that day. I remember talking to him in the morning, and it was almost lunchtime, and he told me he had to go to the BX to get some stuff, and then he would talk to me after lunch. And then later I found out that that's when he bought the murder weapon. Zakharuski purchased a machete at the PX. He returned to work and sharpened the machete. Later that evening, he bought a 12-pack of Budweiser. 
He also attended a business class that night and then went out and had a beer with a classmate, a Desert Storm veteran. Zakharuski asked him some strange questions, including how it felt to kill someone. Zakharuski went home. He was the first in his family to come home that day. He placed the razor-sharp machete behind the door of the bathroom. Sylvia and the kids eventually came home. It was reported in the Northwest Florida Daily News that Sylvia and her husband argued later that night. Eventually, the yelling stopped. Sylvia, Edward Jr., and Anna began watching TV. Sylvia was in the living room. The kids were in another room. Zakharuski grabbed a crowbar. He walked down the hall to the sofa in the living room where Sylvia was sitting. He smashed the crowbar at least twice against her head. He then took her unconscious body to the bedroom where he wrapped a rope around her neck in an attempt to strangle her. She was either dead or near death. Here is Elmore describing what happened next. Then he went into the uh, bathroom where he had the uh, machete propped behind the bathroom door. And he called uh, Edward, who was the seven-year-old son, to the uh, bathroom, uh, telling him, come brush your teeth. He testified that when Edward entered the room, as I recall, when he, when he first testified, he testified, no, they didn't see it coming. But then he admitted that, yeah, uh, Edward did see me raise the machete out from behind the door in the mirror. And we knew he did because both children had defensive wounds on their arms where they raised their arms to try to stop the blow. So we knew Edward had seen it coming. And so he killed Edward and put Edward in the tub. Edward Jr. nearly had his arms severed, his torso also was nearly cut in half. After Edward Jr. was hacked to death, his father called Anna to the bathroom. Then he called Anna to brush her teeth, and he testified that Anna never saw anything that he, you know, that he was able to hack her without her seeing anything. Well, the blood spatter analyst, uh, Jan Johnson of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, did a fine job of reconstructing that scene. And it was obvious uh, from her testimony that he had, in fact, taken Anna and knelt her over the tub while she was still alive. Of course, she was kneeling, looking straight down into the tub at her hacked-up brother. And... Um, he then took Sylvia into the bathroom to make sure he killed her, uh, so he cut her some with the uh, machete as well. It couldn't be any more horrible what he did. After both kids were dead, Zakharuski dragged his wife into the bathroom. To make sure she was dead, he used the machete on her too. Here again is Michelle Nicholson. From the standpoint of horrific crime scenes, I would think this would have to rank right up with anything that's, that's happened in the state of Florida. You essentially had, by all accounts, was a, a loving father who read to his children, tucked them into bed at night, put their PJs on them, decide that he was going to take out the whole family, essentially, because his wife had told him that she wanted to go back to Korea 
uh, wanted to have an all-free-in child, according to the prosecutor, and wanted a divorce. He decided that wasn't going to happen and planned out, in short order, how to murder the entire family and make his escape. Zakharuski was energized after the murders. That's what he told a psychologist who interviewed him before his trial. After he was through, he went. He went and opened himself a beer and sat on the sat on the couch for a while, and, and um, said, that, according to the psychologist that interviewed him, that he he was feeling this sense of euphoria and how well it had all gone. And uh, he actually got up at one point and went and checked to make sure it was all that he had actually done what he did. And uh, I guess at some point thereafter, decided to drive to Orlando and fly to Hawaii. He actually took his time before leaving. According to a story in the Northwest Florida Daily News, after Zakharuski had that beer, he headed out to a bar. After slamming down a few drinks, he passed out. Police found him, but they were not aware of what he had done hours earlier. No one except for Zakharuski knew. The cops took his keys to ensure he didn't drive while intoxicated. They left and let him sleep. The next morning, Friday, June 10th, Zakharuski walked home. He had to break into his house because he didn't have his keys. He put on his uniform, took his wife's keys, took her car, and drove to work. His co-workers sensed nothing was wrong. Zakharuski left early. He drove to Orlando, sold his wife's car, and boarded a flight to Hawaii. Saturday, June 11th rolls by and no one senses anything wrong. No one comes in and out of the Zakharuski house all day. Sunday morning, June 12th, an employee at Gulf Coast Seafood on Miracle Strip Parkway in Fort Walton Beach calls the Zakharuski house. He leaves a message on the answering machine telling someone to move the car that has been sitting in the lot for two days or else it would get towed. On Monday, June 13th, Sergeant Zack failed to show up for work at the Air Warfare Center in Eglin. He is listed absent without leave. An Okaloosa Sheriff's deputy showed up at the house around 2.30 in the afternoon that day for a wellness check. He finds the bodies of Sylvia Zakharuski and her two children in the bathroom. The kids are lying in the tub. Word was getting out. Barker remembers getting a call from a fellow sergeant. Well, um, I got a call, and they were like, um, it was a friend of mine, Sergeant. I think his last name was Cox. And Sergeant Cox was like, hey, don't you talk to the guy that does the same job as you? And I was like, well, yeah, all the time. He goes, he's missing, and his family is dead. I was like, what? He says, they don't know if he's dead or if he did it. But his car's gone. And, and I was like, what? You know, so I turned on the TV, and, of course, it was all over the news. And I was like, there's no way. This is the nicest guy in the world. There's no way. Nicholson got the call about the crime scene and headed there. Her sources at the sheriff's office were filling her in. But she could tell it was a gory scene, judging by the expressions and body language of those detectives and forensic specialists walking in and out of the house that day. The one thing that I noted right away was the look on their faces, the, the tight 
Jaws, the no-nonsense, very business-like atmosphere that was immediately noticeable to me, and I knew this was something big. The next day, authorities impounded Zakharuski's car that had been parked in front of the Fort Walton Beach Seafood Restaurant. On Thursday, June 16th, a murder warrant is issued for Edward Zakharuski. Additionally, a federal warrant of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution is also issued. I hoped, I know it sounds terrible, I hoped that they found him dead somewhere because that meant he didn't do it. But of course they didn't. And the longer he was missing, I knew, I knew he had to be guilty. Zakharuski would be gone for four months. During that time, neighbors in Okaloosa were very nervous. And the neighbors, you know, were locking their doors and looking over their shoulders because they didn't know where the guy was and everybody was looking for him. Um, you know, and, and you know, he, he even had one neighbor that was supportive of him, um, said he thought it was somebody else that had to have done it because he, he so loved the kids. Zakharuski actually wound up in Maui. He stayed there for a while until his money dried up. After he made the bank withdrawal and sold his wife's Chevrolet, he had more than $8,000, but the plane ticket soaked up a portion of that. Before long, Zakharuski made his way to Molokai. He was mostly slumming it, but he was living in a tropical paradise and was making new friends. He was living in a pup tent in the woods, on Molokai, he had run completely out of money. He was living in a pup tent on, in the woods, and a, uh, a preacher, the preacher saw him living in this tent and made contact with him and offered to uh, allow him to come live on the church grounds in a shack they had and, you know, and help uh, them with chores around the church. That preacher would later become a key witness in the case. Does this theme music sound familiar? That's the theme song from Unsolved Mysteries, which was the show that got Zakharuski jailed. Unsolved Mysteries aired on NBC during the 80s and 90s. Elmore shared with me what that preacher said while on the stand describing the one night he invited his new friend to his house to watch television. I'll never forget his testimony. It, the other amazing thing was this was the very first night he'd entered their home to watch television with them. And Unsolved Mysteries comes on, and, and when they showed Mr. Zakharuski and the horrible crimes he had committed, the preacher turned and looked at him and said, Brother Michael, that looks just like you. Well, the reason he called him Brother Michael was he had assumed the name of a local disc jockey from our area named uh, Robert Michael Green, who was kind of a disc jockey celebrity in our area and was going by the name of Michael. So then, as you know, they they, they kind of summarize Unsolved Mysteries at the end. And when, it came, when his face was shown again, the preacher turned and looked at him and told him, Brother Michael, that really looks a lot like you. 
And they said that he didn't respond at all. He didn't say anything in return. And then he said, I'm going to bed. And he went out to the shack. And uh, we don't know what time, uh, but he placed a note on the bed that said simply, I'm sorry. And walked down to the town of Molokai to their one-horse jail and uh, turned himself in, told them he was wanted for murder. And... uh, that's how he was arrested. Zakharuski's case also had been profiled on America's Most Wanted in July. It was only mentioned briefly on that program. But the Unsolved Mysteries segment included a lot more information. Zakharuski probably realized he had nowhere to run. Anonymity seemed impossible, regardless of where he was. During the long plane ride back, Okaloosa detectives hardly heard a peep out of their suspect. He remained quiet from the Molokai jail to the Okaloosa County Jail. He'd have to wait almost two years before his trial date. At one point, he had decided he didn't want to remain in jail. He and another inmate, who also was awaiting trial for murder, decided they'd try to make a run for it. They didn't get far. They, they basically, as I recall, it was essentially a situation where they tried to climb a fence, but, you know, the the officer saw them and, you know, yelled, stop or we'll shoot, you know, <laughs> and they, they decided to stop. You know, they didn't get out of town or out of the, they didn't even get out of the confines of the jail, as I recall. After that failed escape, Zakharuski seemed at peace with the idea that he'd spend the rest of his days confined. When it came time to select a jury for trial, Zakharuski did something unexpected. He pleaded guilty to three counts of first-degree murder. He did so, presumably, to save himself from the electric chair. You know, the case was scheduled for a regular jury trial on guilt and death penalty and he came in the morning of the trial and he and his attorneys pled him guilty to all three counts of murder with you know we we had no forewarning that that was going to occur and they they basically did it as a strategy to attempt to save him from the death penalty the sentencing hearing lasted more than a week. A jury still had to be selected, and they still had to listen to the state's evidence. The sentencing hearing centered on the testimony of the defendant, who described in very specific terms what he had done to his wife and kids. He came off calm and collected, and his demeanor belied the brutality of the crimes he had committed. Those in the courtroom also heard from people who testified that Zakharuski was a patient husband and a doting father. He seemed to me incredibly subdued, kind of quiet, a nice-looking young man. You know, he was an airman. He carried himself well, but an air of despondency around him from my perspective. Whether or not that was genuine or not, it's hard to say because when you look at the nature of the crime, you know, it's just hard to feel a lot of sympathy for someone that's capable of that. But I think what, what threw a lot of the community for a loop and a lot of the people that reported on it was the testimony and the evidence that by all accounts, Prior to this, he was a good dad. Those who remember the case do so vividly. 
There was the gory crime scene. There was the unusual murder weapon used against the kids. There were the circumstances behind the defendant's capture. And there was the defendant himself, who before that day seemed incapable of committing such a massacre. And I had a son fairly close in age to Edward, the, the child that he murdered. And it is essentially a case that will haunt me my entire life. It's painful to even reflect back and think about it because it was an emotional nightmare to cover this. And if you have any kind of compassion in your or empathy in your heart, it was devastating. And I literally um, found myself crying during the court proceedings, after the court proceedings, then at bed at night. You cannot separate your humanity from your profession when you're covering a case like this with little children being, you know, hacked to death with a machete. It was so horrifying to me um, that there were portions of his testimony where I was getting so emotional I literally had to get up and leave the courtroom and I absolutely could not look at the crime scene photos. I knew that if I did that it would have, you know, even more devastating impact on me. So I did not actually look at any of the, the crime scene photos. Nicholson could go back and look at them now if she so chooses, because she's an employee of the Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office. She has chosen not to do so. Zach Aruski did attempt to downplay the suffering his kids endured during the attacks and acted as though they had no time to have any fear. But it was abundantly clear that Edward Jr., saw the blade coming toward him, which is why he raised his arm to defend himself. And it was also clear that Anna could see the blood splatter and her own brother's corpse lying in the tub when she was forced to kneel in front of the tub and look directly at her brother's blood-covered body while her father brought down the machete. Here again is Tom McLaughlin. And then he told the jury that she didn't know what was going on and it was painless death for her. But obviously he's, uh, he's lying there. The jurors' votes were a surprise to many, especially for the first-degree murder charge for Anna's death. Jurors voted 7-5 to five for death for both Sylvia and Edward Jr. But for Anna, the vote was 6-6. Six to six. A tie vote automatically results in a life recommendation. Up until 2016, Florida juries only had to have a majority vote to recommend death. However, the judge in the case believed so strongly that Anna's murder was the most savage of the three that he overturned the jury's recommendation for life and sentenced Zakharuski to death for that charge as well, giving him a total of three death sentences. Judges had that power until 2016. Nicholson was among those who were surprised at the jury's 6-6 to vote. Absolutely. It survived everybody in that courtroom. And, you know, talking to people afterwards, the mindset was that maybe these jurors just could not comprehend that he could have pushed his little girl's face down into that bathtub where the, you know, basically dismembered body of her older brother was there. And that's been the last thing that she'd seen before he killed her and that they just maybe couldn't accept that. But yes, it was a shock to me and I think to pretty much everyone in the courtroom. 
Elmore told the media he was surprised and disappointed by the jury's recommendation. He recently told me that he had heard from a bailiff that one of the jurors who had voted for death for Sylvia's and Edward Jr.'s murders didn't feel it was necessary to recommend a third death sentence. His statement was, how many times do we need to kill him? Elmore told me that the judge's death sentence for Anna's murder was endorsed by the Florida Supreme Court. Even the Florida Supreme Court stated that that the reason they upheld Judge Barron's uh, jury override on on that count was that they felt that Anna's death was, in fact, the most compelling case for the death penalty. which is exactly what I need. And so it was very disappointing to me from from a legal standpoint that, that the jury did that and put us in a position where we had to fight like crazy to get a jury override on the case that most deserved the death penalty. Zakharuski, like many others on death row, no longer has any appeals left to file. He is just sitting there waiting for a death warrant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was just talking to a co-worker, and uh, um, we were talking about this case and that, that, that you and I were going to be talking about it, and she said, that, that's one guy I, I won't you know, bother me to see put to death if and when they ever do. It's been uh, 22 years now he's been on death row. So you just go, God, Lord, when, what, you know, and, and he's exhausted all his appeals. He had two years ago when I reported that it was 20 years um, since he'd, you know, been placed on death row. Elmore remembers a time when it appeared that an execution date was about to be set. There was a time when some representatives of Governor, I think it was Governor Bush, uh, came to my office in Crestview and they were there to examine the file and they asked me a few questions and it, it looked like to me they were getting ready for a death warrant, but it didn't happen. Governor Jeb Bush has been out of office since 2006. There is still no execution date set for Zakharuski. Barker is among those who wishes she could face Zakharuski and ask him to his face, why did you have to kill your own children and why did you do it in that manner? I would love to ask him, you know, why would you do that? I don't get it. Why that way? You know, I mean... So many more humane ways of doing that if he felt he had to do it. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss the murder of a Flagler County man who was involved in a deadly love triangle. His burned up body was found five years ago in a desolate logging area near St. Augustine. Among my special guests will be former prosecutor Jackie Royce. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Mm-hmm.